When we first started trying, we took a long weekend in the Yucatan. Lucinda looked around on the internet and found a place and we went. It was still sleepy and relatively undiscovered then. We had a whole cottage to ourselves with hammocks on the porch. We drank tequila at two in the afternoon and napped for four hours afterward and awoke to pitch blackness and the sounds of night. Our circadian rhythms reverted to those of an animal. Lucinda slept so soundly it startled me. I gently shook her awake one night, I remember, just to be sure. Maybe she seemed more fragile to me in her more natural state. I don't know. The Caribbean crashed a hundred feet from our window. The turquoise water a souvenir under the glowing moon. Our bodies were an S-curve in the center of a king-size bed. She didn't get pregnant. It took many tries over a year, a year and a half. I don't remember exactly. The reality of my daughter transcended my ability to fully express her meaning to me. I found in myself reserves of charity and boundless love that I did not previously know were there. Perhaps she put them there, I don't know. Made them grow. This kind of love, it seems, only grows and changes, and it doesn't die. The same cannot be said of romantic love. Romantic love is fragile. I am a coward. But I don't trust her motives either. It is painful to admit. I'm a coward. I don't fully understand why it has come to this, but it is inevitable. It's easy to disappear. What's hard is leaving. Sliver, issue 19, October 13th. Morning has broken. Me, by Lucinda B. Lydia and I got out of the house early this morning. We did a three-mile stroll around the park, looked at some waterfalls, then circled down toward the lake to watch the sunrise. Did you catch that? We were out long enough to stroll three miles and look at some stuff and watch the sun come up before most people's alarm goes off. Then Lydia had second breakfast and put some dangerous stuff in her mouth while I stared at my phone. When I say Lydia and I got out of the house early this morning, by early, I mean my circadian rhythms are now like those of a fruit bat. Why? Because my daughter is what's termed, in certain parenting circles, an early riser. This phrase sounds gentle and appealing when it refers to, say, a breakfast sandwich or a yoga retreat, but it should strike a shard of cold fear deep to the core of your being if your pediatrician utters it in reference to your child. Let me explain. The day Mitch and I decided to start our family, we lay in our Serta Perfect Sleeper around 10.30 on a Sunday morning, sipping coffee, visions of tiny toes and 
downy hair and closed eyelids filling our heads. And filling our bed, too. We actually bandied around the idea of co-sleeping with our little nugget during that conversation, if memory serves. The thought of which now makes me actually flop sweat. We didn't know that particular morning could have been one of the last actual times we would lie in bed together dreaming at any time of day, because one thing nobody told us was that we might never sleep again once we had a baby. Certainly not long enough to enter REM sleep. And this is when your baby is a normal riser, like up once or twice a night to feed with a final burst of unconsciousness that lasts until maybe 6.30 a.m. If, God forbid, your kid is an early riser, well, my friend, Put all five seasons of The Wire on your Christmas list now, because you're going to need them between 4 a.m. and second breakfast. Nobody told us. Seriously, we got lots of info about lots of things. How to make your own baby food. Cloth versus disposable diapers. How to have an orgasmic birth. (laughs) Yeah, no. But the whole deal about sleep? Nope, not a peep about that. Why didn't anyone just tell us? Why didn't anybody sit us down and spill the beans about how precious little babies are terrible sleepers? (laughs) Sure, I mean, people intimated we would not be sleeping very much. There were rumors, let's say. But the particulars, the real facts about how newborns make these hideous sounds all night long, like little baby aliens in your pitch black bedroom with you so you can't sleep, really, while they are sleeping, quote, end quote, and that they wake up to feed for like an hour and a half, four or five times a night between the hours of 9 p.m. and 4 a.m. for months, and that even if they outgrow all that, they still might get stuck on the 4 a.m. part for the foreseeable future? No. Mum was the word on all those picky and little details. Maybe nobody said anything because they have PTSD and they don't want to revisit their own personal horror. Maybe they were still in the throes of their own sleep-deprived psychosis and couldn't tell the difference between facts and lies anymore. And in fairness, I'm strange. My family didn't teach me things, and I don't like kids really, so I had no experience with them in their primordial state. And, And I am overstating things for effect. Because this blog is supposed to help you maintain your sense of humor in the face of caring for a baby, while not letting the baby kill you. And I can kinda see why nobody talked. I can. Mistakes were made, yes, but they were made out of an abundance of care and respect. Not for us, personally. My husband and I are not terribly outgoing or honestly very popular, but respect for the role of parent. Parent friends kept mum because they already knew what Mitch and I are now just beginning to understand. That every parent has to learn for themselves. And it's no use scaring the living crap out of people who have just made a person and have to figure out which end of it is up. They're going to need to keep believing things will actually get better in order to get through the worst. They don't need to be wondering what the hell they've done to their one precious life when they're trying to figure out how to hold something with the structural integrity of pudding. So, our friends tried to do the right thing. The kind thing. They did. They tried to spare us the gory details we would inevitably experience for ourselves. Actually, that's not entirely true. Many people gleefully recounted the horror of their birth experiences to me, completely unsolicited. The baby was crowning, and I was still stuck in the elevator between floors, LOL. And there were loads, shall we say, of exploding poop diaper stories, so thanks for those, guys. But back to my point. 
not telling someone the whole truth about something can be an act of kindness. Yes. We have a desire to spare people the ugly yet inevitable truths about having kids, having babies. And we do it out of goodness, not meanness. But there's another reason, too, I think. Now that I've had lots of time to think about this, and I do mean lots of time awake to think about this, I think there's also another big reason for the cover-up, as I now affectionately think of this. Lean in close. I'm going to whisper the other big reason for the cover-up to you. It's for the survival of the fucking species. It is. Humans who've done this, who've made tiny humans, we now know on a primal level that we wouldn't have dared do this if we had known beforehand how much it really kind of sucks. How your life as you knew it is over. Even though you love your baby with a fierceness that burns away everything inside you that you thought you understood about love. But we don't spill the beans about any of it in a truthful way in a way that gives voice to fear and disappointment. We let our fellow humans figure it out on their own, sitting by quietly, tamping down smug hysterics as our best girlfriends describe how they're going to work from home for the first year, quote, while the baby sleeps, end quote. No, sweetie, no, you're really not going to work from home for the first year while your baby sleeps. And what's more, we don't warn people in the throes of hormonal insanity away from ruining their future European vacations because we don't want to bear our misery alone. It takes a village, after all, a very tired village, especially if, like us, you have family that doesn't care that you made more family members to ignore. I'm sorry, I know, I know, I'm being awful. I have everything to live for, and I am grateful. Mitch is a sweetheart. I'm employed doing something I love. Thank you. My toddler is a real hoot when I'm not cross-eyed with fatigue. And I'm over my parents' questionable parenting methods. I am. I really am. I've dealt with all those feelings, and I am grateful for what that experience ultimately gave me. Kind of. Having children is amazing. Literally, having the baby, though really painful, is awesome in the truest sense of that word. Smelling her little head and hearing her coos and sighs and watching her learn to talk and walk, it's freaking amazing. Seeing your face on someone else's little face, learning them, learning from them, it changes you in, in the best unexpected ways. Truthfully, though, in a lot of practical ways, having kids blows. There's the sleep thing. It can be terribly isolating, especially if you have postpartum depression. You have to spend a shitload of money on childcare, particularly if you have no family able or willing to help. And soon you might find out it's actually more economical if you don't work. You work just so you can afford to pay someone to look after the baby so you can work. It's fucked. <laughs> For women, it's fucked. If you have the need to put yourself into something other than your kids. And your husband might find a million unexpected ways to not participate in your new life. He might cling to his side of the bed and need rhapsodic acknowledgement of folding the clothes or putting a freaking lasagna in the oven. You might feel like you've fallen for some kind of trick. And who wants to feel this way all by themselves? Nobody, that's who. Not us, not me, not my other friends with kids, obviously. We want you 
here to help us bear up under this fresh hell next to this stinky diaper genie, which totally stinks. Don't believe that odor control line is bullshit. And it will smell like bullshit. Just letting you know. We need you for company and commiseration. And you wouldn't be here if you knew what was in store for you in the first year or three. You might choose to just continue to sleep in and go to brunch around two o'clock in the afternoon on the weekends and have day sex whenever you feel like it. And your marriage would still be about you as a couple. And all the money you will spend on crap you don't need and crap you desperately need, you could put in your 401k. And where would that leave me? All alone on a bench in a playground, finishing Lydia's goldfish crackers. (laughs) Alone. With my thoughts. And then, I'd have to murder somebody. So, see? Survival of the species. Fine, I'm overstating things, but no, I'm not. (laughs) Okay, sure, I am. It's great. (laughs) I'm not, and it's not. (laughs) Forgive me, I'm talking in circles. I'm underslept. What I wouldn't give to be unconscious right now. I'm going to fucking kill you! Well, this is an unexpected... Shut up, you old hag! Sorry. Don't you... Don't you call me! What are you sorry for? Something is finally happening to you. Fuck off! Voice! Wowzers! Fuck! Still not sure if that's like I'm gonna die or orgasm or what. Shut up about that. I will not shut up about it. And I'm not sorry. You said you would be at Marvis. You're not at Marvis. You wouldn't have let me go. I, for one, am very glad you deceived your mother. I don't know where this is, but this is not Marvis. I guess you're proud of that. You're proud that she's also a liar. Hello, there's a larger picture. Oh my God, you're cheating on Dad. You have the worst fucking boundaries and I'm a liar? You fucking entitled little sociopaths. In my house, growing up, oh, here we go. I got smacked in the mouth. Held by the neck if I said, I know you've told me a billion times. Sorry. Ow! Do not apologize or you will know the difference between dying and coming for realsies. I had, I had, I've had a bad experience. I, is this real? I'm, maybe I've actually, I saw your bad experience. You should be fucking ashamed of yourself. Don't talk to me like that, you and Matt. Don't. Wait, how? You looked freaking reconculous. I had a miscarriage, you'll be happy to know. Good. Nobody wanted it. Not me, not Dad, even you. You didn't want it. This is, this is obviously oxygen deprivation. I'm dying, and I'm about to experience myself looking down on myself from above. Uh, no, 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 you will not. I've died from extreme humiliation and blood loss, so thank God. For fuck's sake, would you please stop being such a fucking drama queen and get us the fuck out of here, Mom! Be quiet. You be quiet, you trash can cunt! Shit! Trash can cunt! No. Fucks, no. Call me a trash can cunt, you little ungrateful piece of... I can still hear my heart beating. I'm still breathing. Fucking die already! Ugh! I I can hear 
many hearts here we're all in here together we have to get out turn on the lights right now turn on the lights right fucking now this is your final warning. One final warning, and there will be consequences. Benji ordering me to do shit in my own dimension. The fucking nerve! And you two pipe down! Ouch! Mom! Mom! You need to stop uh, kind of talking or having thoughts or however it works or something super fucked up will happen. I need to stop. I need to stop. I've finally gone insane. I didn't know it involved blindness. That's some bullshit right there. But I still have to listen to someone with no real responsibilities criticize me and tell me what to do. Shut your matcha smoothie hole, or I'm going to pull your nose off and put a pork sausage where it used to be. Oh, fuck! No, is, is that a thing you do? No, 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 please, please. She's, she's, uh, she's horribly selfish, and, and, and she's horribly self-absorbed, and I'm growing up, and she's sad, and, and, and I... What is your point? Trash can cunt. I'm self-absorbed. Who does everything? I didn't need a house. That was all your father. I was happy in the two-bedroom in Fort Greene before you were born. Who does everything? Cooks and cleans and signs you up and pays for all those those enrichment activities and picks you up and goes to all the functions and writes endless checks and takes you to places you can't possibly appreciate. Christ, all those fucking sing-alongs and playdates. And I was looked down on because I was awkward and depressed and had given up on myself. I stopped writing because I didn't sleep for two and a half years and got tricked into thinking there'd be something left for me as time went on. After you were grown and still loved me and we met for lunch or something and your father didn't just decide he was done with his life and shuffle off to Buffalo. Who talked to your teachers about, about your, your habit of pulling your eyelashes out and called that one horrible mother on Dean Street about her daughter? And, and, and why was I pulling my eyelashes out? It's everyone else, isn't it? You can't just be freaking happy. But it's, it's everybody else's fault, isn't it? Uh, uh, uh. Did you know that, that, did you know that, that, that there's such a thing as theoretical as, as cellular memory? Ah, ah, ah! I have often wished to go insane, so I could just sit in a quiet room in the dark, but I thought I'd be able to see the outlines of the furniture at least. It doesn't feel any better. It isn't peaceful, it just... Do I even have hands? Look, Barky McBarkerson. Don't! I'm going to stick a cat in your butt. Oh, that's mean. And provoke it to anger. Ew, now this is just weird. Leave her alone, you ridiculous barking bitch. Fucking stop, you trash can con. Oh my freaking god. What did you say? Cool it, princess. She can't hear me. Though that was a vaguely amusing insult the first time you said it. She can't hear my part of herself. I'm... I'm sorry, Mom. If you apologize to her one more time, I'm going to flush your precious bone down the eternal galactic toilet. Speaking nonsense, calling me that, that word after all I fucking do for you. Hold the motherfucking mayo, you have my phone. No, I don't have your motherfucking phone, why would I? Is that my job too, N now, to take messages? Why do I pay for a family plan you don't answer the... I never should have dabbled in social media. It brings out the crazies, but you can't do business without it. Where is it? Show it to me. I can't exactly show it to you. 
prove it, bitch. Sorry. So, no, no. Sorry, not sorry. Holy caramba! Ooh, ooh, ooh. Back sass me one more time. Ay, ay, ay. Fuck. One more time and, and I will smack the taste out of your mouth, Miss Pris. What about my story, Mom? When do I get to tell my story? Why aren't you telling her? Why aren't you smacking the taste out of her mouth? Why aren't you rescuing me, fucking sticking up for me? Because she can't hear me, nitwit. Fuck you! Ooh, ooh, ooh! Ooh, ooh, ooh! Ooh, oh, fuck balls. She's not supposed to be here. She never comes here. It's thrown me off, TBH. His forehead was taking a real beating this afternoon. He could feel it. Feel a large egg forming in the middle of his forehead, just beginning to stretch the skin. He felt the skin stinging and his face bones aching. Random scenes from his life popped to the front of his mind like flashcards. That short little brown-haired mathematician girl he'd had a crush on in fourth grade. How he and Randy Tuttle had made a Chick Raider poster and hung it on the wall in Randy's dad's storage building. How they'd raided all the girls in youth group at church and how he'd wanted to give that cute little mathematician girl a nine. But Randy'd said when you raided girls, you had to think of them like horses. Thoroughbreds had long legs and necks while workhorses had stubby necks and short strides and weren't elegant. Elegance was important to Randy, even though, and probably because, he had a tendency toward nosebleeds and lived in a double-wide trailer on a pond that was really just waste runoff for a chicken processing plant. He thinks about the stand of pines behind his apartment complex in Tallahassee, where he lived with his mom after his dad split. He hears his mother calling for him. It's time to come in. She'd call once, and then, when he wouldn't answer, she'd bark, Matt! Once, loudly. He isn't to the high branches yet. There's the taste of sap on his tongue, scraping his knees against the bark as he climbed, his breath not even heavy. He remembers how strong he felt, how up to no good and agile and free. As suddenly he's in New Jersey, in a strange apartment, where he'd fled when he'd fallen back into the lifestyle, the coke and speed and weed and alcohol after coming off his last year in the reserves. His head is throbbing. His eyes are fixed on the bottom of the blinds. Ugh. Ugh. Levelor. Levelor blinds. Those are Levelor blinds, his brain says, stumbling around inside his skull. The purple sky is visible through the Levelor blinds, and he suddenly understands it's morning. 
and he'd had a little too much to drink the night before. He also knows he can't sit up or his head will roll off onto the floor. Also, he's missing an arm. Well, missing is the wrong word. It feels weird. His arm feels weird. Cold, numb, a little tingly. It's asleep. His arm's just sleeping, asleep. He tries to lift it, and it weighs a thousand pounds. His other arm seems fine. He lifts it. It's fine. He turns his head slightly toward his missing appendage, and something silky and fragrant grazes his cheek. Not spicy or floral fragrant, but clean fragrant, shampoo, shampoo scented. The thing on his arm and next to his body is shampoo scented and warm, alive. He tries to sit up. A hand slides up over his chest, over his shirt. He's wearing a shirt. He hears a soft inhale, a hmm, and feels the vibration of sound pulsate through his own body. He turns his head and looks down, and there is Lizzie on the floor next to him. Shampoo scented and warm. It's Lizzie, soft. The ease with which she has become Lizzie surprises him. She's as natural a presence as his own skin, and so quickly. She's right there beside him where he knew she'd be somehow, and she's cutting off the blood supply to his arm. His remaining hand goes cold and his heart jumps. He pats his stomach, what he can reach of his hips, yep, 100% clothed. He cuts his eyes down toward Lizzie. Everything is still in place. The only skin he sees are her shoulders and her arms, elbows to fingertips, same as he saw the previous night. Her yellow dress. That's a pretty color yellow, that dress. What do you call that type of dress? It's a maxi dress. Is that like the new mini dress? Her dress is a small sun shining in the middle of the quiet, dimly lit room. Things aren't perfect between them at the moment. That's why the book, Tight Hugs. She's always been beautiful. She was a beautiful baby and a beautiful little girl. He's seen enough baby pictures. God knows her parents are so proud. And she was used to always being approached. She didn't need to reach out into the world. It came to her, and she knew how to let it come and sit at her feet without looking down her nose at it. She understood beauty was really a transaction. I mean, wasn't it? You can't not look at something beautiful. You can't not want something from it and take from it, too. You take the feeling of majesty it gives you, of importance, maybe serenity. He doesn't know. But you have to give it respect or you fuck the whole thing up. Look at, say, the Grand Canyon. Okay, bad example, kind of crude, comparing your wife and a canyon. Let's look at a waterfall. Most people look at a waterfall and feel something, don't they? Whatever it is, but it's usually not, God, would you get a load of that disgusting waterfall? It starts at the eyes and moves inside you, inside a person until you're going back and back to that waterfall to sit and look and feel as if there's something worthwhile in the world. And if it stops being a waterfall because you're a piece of shit to it and damn it up so its water supply is polluted and, and it's just some shitty ditch with garbage floating on top, well, then the transaction is over, isn't it? So care and attention must be paid to it being something a little special. 
He knew it from being in real estate. In any successful transaction, there had to be two things. A, a benefit to both parties involved, and B, respect on both sides. She knew this innately, too, Lizzie did. She understood that, as a beautiful person, the little pedestal she gets to stand on wouldn't always be there if she did not respect that adoration and tend to it right back. Look, he didn't make the rules. Things are how they are. But it's not as if there aren't exceptions. All types of people got laid. I mean, everybody got laid, didn't they? Because it wasn't all about looks. I mean, that little mathematician girl. Randy had called her Hardy's drive through material, but he, he had wanted to be next to her, too. That was the truth. He'd wanted that little mathematician girl. Well, that's because beauty is somewhat in the eye of the beholder, of course. Not entirely, though it's a mix. What he means is, even if Lizzie were more average looking, he'd have been drawn to her anyway. He would have. He's not some shallow prick. They resonate. She's, she's a good person. She's a fair person. She's the mother of his children. She is the person he knows best. He is the person she knows best. It isn't all about looks with them any more than it was all about looks with the culture at large, as Lucinda clearly thinks. Lucinda, fuck. His reverie has gone on for at least a minute without any lunatic raving from Lucinda. Lucinda. He notices for the first time since she'd tackled him that his oxygen supply seems to be dwindling, and either his chest hair has grown since the start of the open house or some of her hair has stuffed up his nostrils. Lucinda! he says again, forcefully. He hadn't realized it, but he's had his eyes clamped shut, which is an understandable thing one might do if one is being attacked by a wild animal, and when one is unconscious, briefly. He opens them. He's looking down the part in Lucinda's brownish hair. It's like a tiny, snow-dappled valley between two mountain ranges. She dyes her hair, of course. She's like a cannonball on his stomach and groin, and one of her hands is resting, unmoving, thankfully, over his crotch. Enough, fuck. Lucinda, he tries again, this time attempting to sit up. She's dead weight. Lucinda, he tries again. Ignoring the throbbing pain in his head, he strains to rise, while simultaneously pushing her gently to his left. She barely budges. His pulse quickens, his stomach drops. She had been acting like a goddamn rabid raccoon, but that doesn't mean he wants her dead or something. He closes his eyes against the pain of the horn growing from his forehead, wraps his arms firmly around her, and awkwardly heaves both of them over to one side. Her head bonks loudly on the parquet floor. She makes a sound. Well, a sound escapes her, if he is being truthful, is more like it, like the air whooshing out of an air mattress. He scoots backwards away from her and leans himself against the door jamb. He rubs his forehead. Lucinda doesn't move. Lucinda, he says to the air. He looks at her, lying there like a beached porpoise or something, in her whatever it is, lemony snicket workout wear. Her clean workout wear, she'd showered and changed into basically the same clothes to come here and what? Why do women walk around in that style anyway? That style that says, I'm always going to or coming from a workout. Lizzie would never do that. She always looks like she has somewhere to be that doesn't involve crunches. She does bar class, yeah, but, but she doesn't dress like she's obsessing about her body 24-7. Lucinda, wake up! 
But she does not wake up. She's not waking up. Fuck. Don't freak out. Do not freak out, he tells himself. He can tell the truth. He'll just tell the truth. It's not... He didn't do anything wrong. He... Maybe the talks about about his marriage, about the, the, the book, were out of line. Maybe. But, but, but no. No. He has done nothing. He hasn't put his hands on this woman. He doesn't wish ill on her, but, but what is someone supposed to do when someone else builds up a whole story about you in their mind? A story that is built on a foundation of, of tissue paper. He didn't encourage this. He was flirting. This was just flirting. Flirting is the thing people do. People do it all the time. It, too, is just a transaction. He listened to her. He'd have given her a break on the commission, even. She'd have had quality representation selling the house, made a bundle, and moved on. It's not his fault she's taken things the wrong way. And let's not forget that Lizzie, his wife, was a fucking princess to her down in the park. His wife is a giant, always has been. He, who, 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 who. She's talking. She's not dead. She doesn't have brain damage, probably, thank Christ, from this. That's shitty. He regrets thinking it. He moves on. She groans and brings her hand up to her head. He moves toward her. Everything to do with her hurts. He holds his forehead. She holds her forehead. He remembers that she is still in a delicate physical condition. Her color isn't terrible. He double checks her body from afar. It's fine. He doesn't touch her. Fuck no, not now, not ever. He takes in a breath, makes as if to speak. He stops. He could call an ambulance. No, then he'll have to stay with her. But he's not a complete jerk. He'll call her an Uber to take her the quarter mile home. And if this comes back to bite him in the ass, he can say, look, I called her an Uber. Or, or he could gently rouse her and hold her up under one arm and give her another shot at a drink of water, walk her home. He could help her out of this mess she's created, but he wants to be rid of this. He's at the limit of his compassion. Who, who, who are you? I hear myself say. You need help, he says back. My forehead throbs. I feel like I'm growing a horn. I try to sit up but slip. I haven't yet opened my eyes. I do not wish to see the look of disgust on his face or feel his deep need to get as far away from me as possible. I wish that I couldn't hear in his voice the kind of help he thinks I need. I used to be better at that, turning a deaf ear to things that didn't jibe with how I wanted to hear them. I used to be able to smile automatically when I really just wanted a man to leave me alone or stop speaking to me about things he didn't truly understand or explain to me in great detail something that I knew more about simply by virtue of being a woman or a sentient being or having aged past 12. Or when he was insinuating that my own lived experience of my life had never actually happened. I used to be able to lie to myself so easily to make other people feel comfortable. Now I'm just an appetite. I want what I want. I cannot hide it. Strangely, suddenly my head is full of bright light. I'm walking in a field of translucent white flowers, sun radiating, pulsing from the horizon, washing everything in its path with glittering golden light. The flowers glow like paper lanterns. The grass feels strange. I look down at the grass. It is, it is brownish green sludge. My feet are stuck in dank, dark, green, vegetal, putrid-smelling muck. It smells like a New York City Park Service public toilet. I feel like I'm gonna puke. Get up, 
he says, now from the kitchen. I open my eyes very slightly, the insult of the scene of another of my transgressions a slap. He's crouched in the tiny, silly little galley kitchen, an open blue Ikea bag in his hand. He is throwing lemons and Perrier into it hurriedly. He unrolls some paper towels to wipe up the brownish water in the sink. I think it would be best, okay, I say. I don't need to know what he thinks would be best. My voice sounds little and quavering. I don't want him to leave. I don't want to be left again. I'm having trouble rising to my feet. Can you help me? I ask. I sound like a baby that fell down a well. He walks toward me. He turns away from me briefly, removes the Marilyn Monroe print from the wall, places it on the floor next to the front door, plops down the Ikea bag next to it. He puts his hand under my arm and yanks me to my feet. My stomach rises and falls. I heave Perrier, but only Perrier, onto the floor. He groans, disgusted. I'm reminded I haven't eaten anything for hours. I've been so hungry, but have not felt it. He digs in the Ikea bag and pulls out the roll of paper towels. He tears one off, one, and drops it to the floor, points at it, silently ordering me to wipe up my own bile. He pulls his phone out of his pocket, his phone. I touch the pocket of my jacket, feel the outline of my own phone. There's an Uber on the way. Don't contact me again. And stay away from my family. And then he leaves. Everyone leaves. She can never leave. If she leaves, she'll be that bitch who left. Mom! I'm in Fort Green. Mom! Her phone rings. She looks at the caller ID. It is her husband. Her stomach drops. Her heart clenches. A car horn beeps from outside, I guess. She guesses, she guesses she will go home. She guesses she will go be in her house. I mean, I care. And like, that means I can't just do nothing sometimes, you know? There was this one time, so, like, there's this kid in our school who's weird. He uses this phony name, Chadwick. His name is Craig, but, but that's not interesting enough, so he has this, like, made-up, like, ascot name. He wears like tank dresses over pants and lace up silver boots. He's fabulous, straight up, but he doesn't know how to just behave. Like, just eat the sandwich. Just write the paper. Don't do like a, a kick line or some shit. 
He's all mixed up because his parents do things like do wine tastings on Friday nights, which means they sit and drink like two bottles of wine on Friday nights and pass out while he makes himself pizza rolls and gives himself one of those little stripy burns on his forearm trying to get them out of the oven. They don't see him for who he is or give a shit that they fucked and boom, Chadwick, boom, Craig, this, this little one right here. So we sit with him at lunch, Lydia and me. Lydia dyed his hair for him. I kicked this one asshole in the balls for him in the bathroom because when you're queer, people are always trying to trash you. I don't know if that's his deal, but I know my own deal, and I'm just telling you, if you bust up a person's narrative of the world they're comfortable living in, (laughs) they get hella pissed. It's not about values, it's about power. But whatever, I'm just gonna hang in there until all these fuckers die off. That's the plan. But anyway, like... I know what's right, is what I'm saying. And she's my friend. And if she said, I bought these underwear on sale, they just happen to be radioactive, don't at me, I would have to say, well, that's not exactly something I'm gonna overlook, for your sake and mine. I am not going to change up who I am and what I know. My family are my people and my people are my family. They hold me up in this world, not the other way around, so... That's why I gotta do this. Lydia's gonna be pissed as fuck. But... Whatever. I gotta do the right thing. To this, everyone is tempted to fit suitably sad words. In fact, according to Roberts, the translated rendering of some South African tribes is, my mother is dead, my father is dead, all my relations are dead.
and my heart goes dum 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 dum. 